In this episode, I'm going to sound a bit like an awkward teenager at a middle school dance because I will probably be stepping on some toes. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of their lives so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, we are going to be continuing on our four-part series on what human beings are made of. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the idea or the theory that human beings are a trichotomy. And that's just a fancy word for basically being made out of three pieces. Now, there are kind of differing ideas on what each piece functions as, but for the most part, when we're talking about human beings being made of three parts, the popular idea is that we have a body, which is our physical form. We have our soul, which is sort of the core of who we are. It's our emotions. It's our personality, beliefs, just things like that. Things that make us who we are outside of our physical selves. And then the third part of of human beings is our spirit. Now, this is the thing that would interact with God or connect to him. Uh, the basic idea of this is that the spirit of man is dead until we become a Christian, until Christ saves us and the Holy Spirit basically revives our dead spirit. So all humans have a body, all humans have a soul, but only Christians would be considered to have a living and active spirit inside of them. Now, as I said in the last episode, I'm kind of taking this series uh, one by one on what I think has the most biblical support. Obviously, there are a lot of people out there who are going to disagree with me, but for for the sake of just my own discussions, that's how I'm doing this. And so with this episode, some people might be surprised to learn that, you know, ignoring the last episode about human beings being purely physical, that that I would find the idea that human beings are three parts to be least supported by God's word. And that is because ultimately this, from from my understanding, this is the most popular belief in terms of how human beings are made or what they're made of. And in a way, it's it's a very convincing argument, as we will see. If you read certain parts of the Bible, it seems very clear that human beings are obviously physical, but as far as our spiritual component goes, we have two different spiritual things inside of us. Now... As always, when uh, I'm kind of breaking down these theories on different things, there are some good convincing pieces of evidence, but at the same time, those pieces of evidence also end up creating just as many issues as maybe they try to solve or answer. And so, just like my last episode, my plan here is to go through and give some pieces of support for why a trichotomy view of human beings is biblical or makes sense. Um, and I'm going to have five, really five and a half reasons or five reasons and a bonus reason. Uh, but then after that, I'm going to go through and one by one address the biblical and logical problems that each of those uh, pieces of evidence need to answer or account for if we're going to hold to this view of human beings. Now, just looking at my notes, I'm just going to go ahead and say that this is going to be a longer episode, so I'm going to have timestamps down in the show notes where I will break down where each support is, where each kind of counterpoint is, uh, 
in the intro and conclusion. So if you want to reference this later, if you just want to kind of speed through it or skip pieces of evidence or dig into the ones that are most interesting to you, those will be down there. But let's just get into it. Now, support number one for human beings being made in three parts is that we are made in God's image and God is three persons in one. Evidence of this would be obviously in Genesis chapter one and the first part of verse 26, which says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, the understanding or the explanation here would be that what we see here is God the Father talking to the two other members of the Trinity, so the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And so when God the Father says to them, let's make man in our image, what he's saying is let's make man like us in that he will be a three-part being who is ultimately one whole. So just as we would say that God is whole, but God is also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this explanation would say that man is a whole being, but composed of that is that man is body, soul, spirit. And so ultimately, this this support is simply saying that we are made in God's image. God is three, so man is three. Support number two, then, is going to be that the Bible itself actually divides us into three parts. Now we see this evidence in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And so here we see that the three parts of man is being represented here. We have the heart, which people would explain as our spirit. We have loving God with all our soul, which people would explain as our soul, and then with all our might or with all our strength, which is how we would understand our physical bodies. And so here, very clearly, God is saying to, you know, love him with every aspect, every bit of who we are, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, elsewhere, where we see man being divided into three is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, which says... Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, just like in the Old Testament, we see even in the New Testament that human beings are, when when talking about the entirety, right? Because it's saying, you know, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And here then Paul is breaking down what the entirety of man is, spirit, soul, and body. Now, support number three for a trichotomy view is that the soul and spirit can be separated because they are two separate things. Now, this is a piece of evidence that might be used to counter those who would say that soul and spirit are the same thing and that we are two parts, which we'll cover next time. But this piece of support would say that, no, God's word is saying that soul and spirit are two separate entities that are divided by God's word. Now we see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here we see that God's word is, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, where these two things maybe meet, and you know God's word can separate them in two and, and divide them up, 
but the overall implication here is that uh, just as joints and marrow are separate things, just as thoughts and intentions of the heart are separate things, soul and spirit would be considered separate things here as well, not two different words for the same thing. Now, looking at support number four, we see that Paul himself speaks about the spirit separately. And this would kind of go um, fit nicely into the previous two. But an important thing to point out is that when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14, he's talking with his mind and his spirit being separate things. And if you recall, our soul is kind of what houses our mind. It's our, it's our, the core of who we are. And here Paul is saying that the spirit and the soul or the mind have separate functions and are doing totally separate things. So he says, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And now this evidence here would simply say that your, his spirit is doing one thing. His spirit is praying, but his mind or his soul is doing something else. Again, saying that these are two just very different functioning things within a human being. Now, support number five, which I would say is the last of our kind of core concrete supports, is that Christ revives our spirit. So to kind of get a fuller understanding of this, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Um, and so what God said to them in Genesis 2.17, when, when kind of giving them the rules of the garden or the rules of the world, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, as we know from the story, Adam and Eve did eat from this tree. They didn't die. Their eyes were opened and they understood sin, but we know that physically speaking, they didn't die. And so classically, we would explain this is that they didn't die in their bodies, but their spirits are the things that died. Their spirits were alive. They were able to connect to God at this time. They were able to have fellowship and a relationship with him. But through their disobedience, through their sin, God's wrath was then on them and their spirits were dead inside of them. They could no longer connect to God in that way. And so kind of having that understanding in mind that we are considered spiritually dead to God and that our spirits themselves are in whatever way a spirit can die, our spirits are dead. And then we see this kind of further explained and expanded through the work of Jesus Christ. Now in Romans 8:10, it says, if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So here again, that because we are in Jesus Christ, our, you know, our bodies are physically alive. Our souls are active within us, you know, our minds and our emotions. But it's because of Jesus Christ that our spirit is also now alive. It was dead, but because of the work of Christ on the cross in dying and taking God's wrath for us, we would say that the Holy Spirit has rejuvenated our spirits and brought us back to life, spiritually speaking, so that we can once again connect to God, just as basically we were always meant to, as human beings were designed to do. Now, as far as this kind of bonus support, this isn't something that is maybe necessarily convincing, but I know that this understanding or this view of a trichotomy appeals to people because of this thought or this idea. And that is that if human beings are a trichotomy view, 
or we are made of three parts, then we can make an argument that animals, or especially pets, you know, dogs and cats and raccoons and honey badgers, they can maybe not have a spirit that connects to God, but they can have souls because we as human beings are made in God's image to have three parts, but then animals can have bodies, yes, but also they can have a spiritual component. Meaning that, you know, our you know, our pet fluffy isn't just a material creature, but they are an eternal creature because we know that souls are eternal things. They don't die when the body dies. You know, our physical form might cease existing, but we know that our souls continue on. And so if human beings are three parts, then maybe animals can be two parts, having a soul that lives on forever. Now, again, as I said, this isn't a widely debated part. You know, you're not going to see a formal debate and someone say that, you know, I don't want my, my cat to, to just cease existing. But this view does get support from people or it is more tempting to, to fall in line with this view if that means that, you know, people who have their fur babies, you know, people who just love their pets... If that gives them a hope that this thing that they have, you know, lived with and loved for, you know, maybe over a decade, that, you know, when that pet dies, maybe they can be waiting for them up in heaven. Again, not a solid piece of support, but it is something that I do want to address in this episode. And that ultimately does it for the support for this. Uh, it's very straightforward. I mean, it's it's literally just reading a couple Bible verses and saying, here, this proves it. So there's not too much in terms of trying to argue for human beings having, you know, a, a physical and spiritual component. And with the passages and the, and the things that we looked at, it makes sense that God's word would seem to very clearly and simply support the idea that human beings are three parts. Uh, and for those who like to think a bit deeper, you know, it also helps to explain, you know, maybe some confusing things, uh, especially what does it mean that human beings are made in God's image? Well, this explains it, that God is Trinity and man in a way is Trinity as well. It also explains what the work is that Jesus Christ did in paying for our sins and that he literally took a dead part of us that was genuinely dead and and through the Holy Spirit brought it back to life. Now, again, at first blush, this can be very convincing. And this is why this is probably the most widely held view of the human constitution out there. But as we're going to see, this belief also creates some problems. Those problems namely being that a lot of the evidence gained for a trichotomy view requires eisegesis. Now, we've talked about that in the past. Um, eisegesis is basically when we assume a truth and then we find text in God's word to support what we want to believe. We ignore the context of the surrounding things. We ignore things said elsewhere in God's word. And we focus purely on saying, because this single verse says it, I am right. And so it is basically taking God's word out of context to support what we want to believe or to gain a belief from the Bible, as opposed to exegesis, which we talked about in how to read the Bible, where we look at what is said, look at the surrounding context and all that we've talked about in the past and get our truth from what is, is clearly being taught as a whole in a, in a verse, in a passage, in a book, and in the Bible as a whole. Uh, another issue that this runs into is that because this belief should be consistent or our method of reading 
or defending this belief should be consistent, it's actually going to lead to some much bigger issues if we try to apply our logic and reasoning or Bible reading methods from certain passages and applying them elsewhere. We're going to see that we're actually going to start dancing very dangerously with some very unbiblical ways of thinking. So now what I want to do is basically just go through point by point and say, here is the support, but here is the kind of counterpoint or the problem created by that belief. So in response to the Trinity and saying that because God is three, human beings are three because we're made in his image. One important thing that we need to be very clear on and very careful about is understanding that God is unique. There is nothing else in the universe like him. We see God himself even confirming this in Isaiah 46 and the last half of verse 9, which says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And so I don't want to beat on this point too much. Uh, If you want to get a bigger understanding of why God is unique and that he is Trinity and how that Trinity works, you can go back and actually listen to episodes 6 and 7, where I really cover this in a lot more detail. But the kind of summary from that that I would want to point out here is that nothing on earth is going to compare to how the Trinity operates. God being three persons in one, not three forms, not three separate distinct gods, is something that we just can't, we can't understand it. We can't explain it because as human beings, all we can do is explain things through our own experiences, through our past. And so when we try to say, oh, well, God is like this, then we're going to run into issues because all we can draw on is our imperfect experience and understandings trying to explain an infinite God who is perfect and unique and unlike anything within his creation. And so let's just break down, especially why we don't want to say that, you know, God is Trinity and he made us in his image. So we are Trinity because God is is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father is a whole and complete person. He has his own thoughts. He has his own personality. The Son and the Spirit are also, you know, two separate beings. Again, with their own uniqueness to them. Now, all that is to say that even though they are different persons, they are still one God. And that's as far as we can explain it, because nothing else makes sense. Any further explanations we do, anything we try to compare it to in our world, like ice and water and steam and things like that, it just falls apart and makes God less than he is, because we want to be comfortable and try to fit him in a box that we can understand. So what we need to understand, though, is that especially how God as Trinity differs from what a human being could possibly be, is that no person in the Trinity lacks anything. None of them is greater or lesser than the other. They all have the same substance. They all have the same majesty. Ultimately, they fulfill just different roles in carrying out the will of God. And that is very different from human beings, because if we are to say that you know, God is like a human, then what we're actually going to do is fall into an older heresy called modalism, where we say that God kind of interacts as Jesus Christ, but then he interacts as God the Father. You know, he kind of puts on different masks, but they're all kind of the same person behind the curtain. 
And, you know, human beings aren't like that because our physical and spiritual components are different substances and they do lack the abilities of the other. My soul can't go and pick up a cup of water. My spirit can't drink that water. And so we, we don't have these independent parts that can exist from one another. And we also don't have, you know, all three of our parts that are eternal. You know, our bodies will die. They will perish. Our soul and our spirit, if that's a separate thing, those will live on eternally, but our bodies will perish and will be remade by Christ at the resurrection. And so, again, like I said, we don't want to to get so locked in and, and say, oh, well, God is three. And, you know, as we looked at our other evidences, it seems to imply that human beings are made of three. So clearly these two are linked because ultimately what that boils down to is human beings being very good at pattern recognition. We see the, the number three, we see the number three and we say, aha, let's try to make them harmonize. Let's try to make them work together. But when we do that with God, what we ultimately do is we compromise his majesty and his uniqueness because we pull him down and we say, well, God is like humans, but he's just not. Just because the number three might be involved doesn't mean we are anything alike. Now, that understanding, of course, doesn't disprove that human beings are made of three parts. But what we see in the creation account 100% does not prove that we are. If we wanted a better understanding of us being made in God's likeness, there are a lot of other beliefs out there. There's just a, a wide variety of people's interpretations. For my money, there's really only two that I think stand up in any way to uh, biblical scrutiny, not just looking at the verse, but kind of the entirety of the Bible. The first one is that we are like God in terms of how we are different from animals. In other words, our emotion, our creativity, our independent thought, our understanding of eternity, because, you know, no cat sits there and has kind of a, an existential crisis saying, you know, what is there after this? They just go find something to knock off the shelf. But human beings, we, you know, if, if this is what it means that we're made in God's image, then we are made like him and that we have a better understanding of reality beyond just the natural world and engaging with it as natural and physical beings. Another understanding of being made in God's image and in his likeness is that if you kind of dig back into the original languages and the original understandings, then instead of thinking of image like we would say a sculptor makes a statue in the image of his model, instead it would be the image in the sense of being a representative. So if you think about it, uh, you know, in, in the big corporate world, you'll have some big businessman and he will send a proxy to a big business meeting. And that proxy will represent him in that business. It'll represent his interests, it'll represent his desires. But that proxy is, is the image of that person sending them. Uh, maybe we could also think of it like a babysitter, where when the parents are gone, that babysitter represents the authority and carries the, the, the will and the desire of the parents with them. And so, you know, ultimately, this is an a, a episode on interpreting the, the creation account, but those two, I would say, are much better explanations of what it means that human beings are made in the image of God. Now... Response number two, and this is responding to uh, passages like Deuteronomy and Thessalonians breaking us into three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. 
uh, again, if we're going to be consistent, then human beings are actually, at the very least, four part beings. And I get that from Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus Christ himself is saying, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So here, Christ is putting human beings as four-part creations. We've got heart, soul, mind, and strength. So here, while we would typically say, well, you know, our soul is kind of our emotions and our thoughts, well, here Christ seems to be separating them and saying that our heart and our mind are separate, and they are both separate from our soul. And we also have strength, which is presumably our body. Now, if we're going to, again, continue being consistent and saying that whatever the Bible says is a part of a human being is kind of one of their components, then we also need to say that we are made of flesh, which we can see in Matthew 26, 41. And I separate this because the word flesh is different from the word might or strength that we see in this Mark passage. We also see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, that human beings are made of affections or bowels, depending on how you want to translate that original word. Uh, and we also see throughout the Bible that, uh, you know, we, we see mentions of our spirits. And we have to realize that spirit here isn't even mentioned when Christ is talking in Mark. He says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no real mention of our spirit there. And so... You know, I hope it's clear that we run into some very dangerous issues when we say, oh, well, because humans are presented in a threefold way, that that is kind of an inventory of what they're made of. Because if we do that, and we then we have to be consistent and say that any time a part of a human is mentioned, that that is a totally separate aspect of who they are. It is a different component. It is another ingredient in the recipe that creates a human being. So... I think we can agree we don't want to go that route. We don't want to say that because this one verse says that that's our support if we're not going to be consistent and apply that elsewhere. Instead, what we can understand is that when Christ is talking about loving God with our strength, heart, soul, and mind, when it talks about how we are made of flesh, how we have our affections, we understand all of this is poetic language. We know that it's a, a, a word device that gets across a point but isn't just, you know, like I said, an inventory checklist where we're saying, oh, well, human beings have to be made of these individual parts and we have to make sure we cover them all. No, we understand that they are getting at something much deeper than some kind of science textbook where we look at it to see what humans are made of. Instead, we know that the whole point of any time we see this, you know, whether it's in the Deuteronomy, whether it's Christ saying it, whether it's in Thessalonians, the whole idea here is that we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to love, serve, and worship God with all that we are. Every part of our being, not just our minds, not just our emotions, not just our bank account, not just how we physically live our lives, but everything that makes us who we are, our whole identity is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that Every part of our lives, if we are wanting to truly love and serve him, if we are wanting to be fully sold out to who he is, every area of our lives should reflect the hope and the faith that we have in Christ. Now, response number three, uh, and this is going to go back to Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, which talks about how the word of God divides soul from spirit. Now, if we want to be funny about it, we can talk about the interesting way that 
the word of God is a new surgical tool or maybe a forgotten surgical tool that can separate joints from marrow and that we should, you know, maybe start introducing this into hospitals so that surgeons can better use this thing to, to operate on people. But, you know, I'm being silly, but that does get at the idea that we need to think about here. And that is consistency and logic in how we are trying to interpret what this verse is saying, because we actually run into a serious problem if we are saying that the writer of Hebrews is talking about how two things that are next to each other are separated by the word of God, not just in a silly medical way, but honestly, joints and marrow aren't connected anyway. So if you kind of you know, get into medical science, uh, you know, marrow is that kind of the gooey center of our bones. Uh, it's, it's what is, you know, contained in our bones. Our joints are, depending on what the writer of Hebrews meant here, our joints are either the point at which our uh, bones meet together. So, you know, our elbow joint is where, you know, our, our arm bones meet at that hinge, or it's the, uh, tendons and ligaments and the things that connect those bones together, whatever it is, whatever it means. If it's, even if it's talking about the physical, medical, biological tendons and ligaments in our bodies, those don't dig in to our marrow. They sit outside the bone. And so here again, we want to just talk about consistency. If we are saying that our soul and spirit mentioned in Hebrews 4.12 is kind of a literal inventory of two things that are connected or together, but that the word of God separates, and we're going to be literal about that, then we can't go and say that joints and marrow are just a poetic device to get at something, and that our thoughts and intentions aren't all we're made out of, but are just kind of a, a small encapsulation of what a person does or what the word of God gets at. Because again, we're going to start running into issues because we need to say, okay, so are we only made of these things? Are we made of soul and spirit, spiritually speaking, and then joints and marrow? Is that all our bodies are made of is just uh, uh, joints and bone marrow without actual bones, without organs, without skin? Um, you know, are thoughts and intentions the only thing that we have as far as maybe our soul goes or whatever, you know, whatever we want to try to shoehorn that meaning into, it is very difficult as, as I'm getting at. It's very difficult to be consistent and say that this is teaching that soul and spirit are separated, but then not apply that same thing to joints and marrow and thoughts and intentions. And so again, what we want to look at here is what is it actually being said? What is the bigger point? Is because, you know, as I say over and over again, the Bible is not a science textbook, but instead it ultimately just reveals truth to us. So what we need to be asking is what truth is this revealing? What is the author of Hebrews getting at and saying when he's talking about how the word of God is living and how it penetrates these things and it separates them? I think ultimately, again, without trying to get too deep into Bible interpretation, it's talking about how God's word gets at intimate areas. It gets below the surface into things that other people can't see. Uh, it's talking about how there is ultimately nothing about us that is hidden from God, that all these things that we can't even get to or see easily, God's word gets at. 
it reveals who we truly are and what we truly desire. And all these things that are being mentioned are basically just reinforcing that bigger point, not that we are made of these individual components or that even these components can be separated. Again, going back to the joints and marrow thing, but instead these very intimate things, these things deep down in a person is what God's word gets at. And it gets at absolutely everything. And that's why we love God's word. That's why we care about it. That's why we let it lead our lives. That's why this whole podcast exists to equip Christians to think biblically because the Bible is relevant. It is necessary for every area of our lives. And what Hebrews 4.12 is ultimately doing is just reinforcing that entire point of why God's word is a necessary and critical component of our daily living. Now, if you're still sitting there and saying, okay, but why does he say that joint and that, that uh, soul and spirit are separate? Stick around for the next episode because I will get further into why God's word might be saying soul and spirit are as the same things. Uh, next is the evidence we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, where Paul is saying that he's doing one thing with his mind or his soul and another thing with his spirit. Now, the first thing we want to ask ourselves is why? Why is Paul saying what he's saying? So what I'd like to do is read kind of the bigger context of what's happening here. And that is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 13 through 17. It says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now, in terms of the discussion on tongues, this is something I've covered at length, and I'll link it down in the show notes if you want to dig deeper into it. I have an article series that digs into uh, spiritual gifts and especially tongues and tongues as they are understood and taught today. I also have an entire episode on 1 Corinthians 14 where I dig into why Paul is saying all these things he's saying about tongues and things like that in this church. But the quick explanation for now, if you haven't read those or if you're not going to pause and go back to them just yet, is that Paul is ultimately getting at the reality that you can have a spiritual experience without any substance. You know, Paul here, if you've read uh, 1 Corinthians, this is not a great church. The things that he is saying is not helpful, it's not encouraging, and he's not recommending anything. So what Paul is getting at is he's, in a way, very lovingly condemning this church for what they are doing. And that is, um, by giving this extreme example, he's getting at the idea that what they're doing, it seems spiritual. They're doing a, a Christian, a church thing. But it's worthless because it has no purpose. It has no meaning to them and especially problematic, as Paul talks about in the whole of 1 Corinthians 14, is that it's it's worthless to those around them. They are not building anyone else up. They are ultimately uh, using tongues in a way that is just kind of living for the thrill and having an emotional high in what they're doing in church. It's all about the experience, not the truth and reality of it. And so... 
the lesson here, again, just like with Hebrews, is that Paul isn't giving a scientific explanation for how our minds or our souls work one way, but then our spirits do another thing, especially because he's talking about praying with his spirit and he's singing with his spirit. And he's saying that these two things have very similar functions if we are going to try to come at this from a scientific explanation saying that here's how the soul operates, here's how the spirit operates. But ultimately, Paul is, if we're reading it that way, saying that they do the exact same thing. Instead, though, what he's doing is he's getting at something much deeper and much more important than what we are made of. Instead, what he's saying is that when we are worshiping, when we are coming together regularly with other followers of Jesus Christ, we want to be intentional and purposeful in what we're doing. We don't want to just do it kind of, you know, blase, whatever. We don't want to just be there for the experience and what we get out of it. We want to be there for worshiping God and especially worshiping God corporately as a group of people. And so we want to be engaged with that. We want it to be a thing where we we ultimately go there wanting to direct our minds to God and and I guess open the stage, if you will, to encourage others in their love and worship of God right alongside us. That is what Paul is getting at here, not saying that my soul specifically does one thing and my spirit specifically does another, but instead he's giving an extreme example, you know, using what's called hyperbole to say that we need to be actively engaged just because it seems spiritual, just because it feels good doesn't mean that it's beneficial. It doesn't mean that it is bringing glory to God. Now, uh, responding to Christ making our spirit alive, what we want to ask is, what did Adam and Eve's death mean? And we would say, oh, well, they died spiritually. Okay, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to have a spirit, an actual thing that you know, if we could picture it, we could hold in our hands, we could put it in a box. What does it mean for that thing to be dead? Because we would say, oh, well, you know, the spirit is, it's dead. It's non-functioning. It's kind of, you know, laying there lifeless, but it, it can't actually do anything until the Holy Spirit regenerates it and revives it because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay. The problem that we're going to run into if we say that our spirits are dead and can't do anything and that they are a, an actual entity that needs to be revitalized and revived and brought back to life, is that there are pagan rulers in, in the Bible that we see, and they had living and active spirits that were informing what they were doing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 2, and the verse, first part of verse 30 says, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land, for the Lord God has hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. So we see here that, just from a very basic sense, the spirit is being talked about in this pagan king as though it's alive. God did a thing to it and, and, and hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Basically, you know, stirred him to be even more of an enemy of God's people. And so we just, we immediately run into an issue when we try to define what a dead spirit means and try to say that that is consistent for all of human creation. For every area of the Bible where the spirit is talked about, it has to be a thing that is dead and, and not 
actually participating in anything because we say that the spirit is how we connect to God. And if our spirit is dead, then we simply can't connect to God because we see that spirits are doing things that we would say the soul is doing in that it is in, in, in the case of this King uh, Sihon, this King of Heshbon, his spirit was actively informing his desires, his beliefs, his actions, but that's what we would attribute to the soul. So again, We'll cover that all a lot more next week, but the point that I want to drive home just with this point or with this consistency problem that we're running into is that how we would define a dead spirit isn't what we see consistently throughout God's word. So instead, how should we think about it? What is a better way to understand being spiritually dead or what death means for us from Adam and Eve to who we were before Christ saved us? How should we better understand that? And ultimately, like with a lot of what we've talked about, it's going to come down to death being a poetic device. So look what we see in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So what does this death do? And how, do, how can how we understand our death for us, when we were spiritually dead before Christ, how can we understand that in light of what happened to Adam and Eve? Well, we can see and we can understand that this spiritual death is ultimately a separation from God. It's a severing of our relationship with him. We know that it is God's wrath on our sin that condemns us and ultimately is what leads to that break, not because we have physical spirits or not physical spiritual spirits, if that makes sense, that are incapable of relating to God. But instead, it is a relational death that we have. It is a relational problem that we have because God's wrath is on us because he must judge our sin. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven, that we can have that sin paid for on the cross so that God then, in pouring his wrath out on Christ, has no wrath left for us because the sin that must be punished has been punished. That is how we are made alive. And so if on our own, we're only going to be rebellious, it is through Christ's death that we can be made alive. And it gives us this kind of a context of our relationship to God the Father in that by bringing us to life, by paying the penalty for our sin that we deserved, and by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone to save us, then that relationship is mended, it is restored, and spiritually speaking, we can again have God the Father treat us as his children, not as his enemies. Despite, if we're honest, how we still like to live like his enemies a lot of times in our lives, that has all been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's not just this Ephesians passage that can kind of better inform how we think about what death means in terms of human beings and their spiritual relationship to God. Uh, you know, I just, I want, I want to read here just a chunk of verses. I'm not going to dig into what they're all saying or meaning, but I just want you to listen to a common theme that we can see within these verses. So we've got Romans 6, 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, jumping up then, Romans 6, verses 6 through 8. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Jumping up to verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So this big chunk of, of Romans 6, you know, what we're ultimately getting at is that this death and life discussion isn't an actual thing where a thing that was literally previously dead has been revived and resuscitated and is now alive. But instead, it's this relational thing where we were dead because of sin, but it through taking part in Jesus Christ's death, we have died to the chains of sin. We are no longer ultimately required to sin because before Jesus Christ, I don't think a lot of us realize this, but we literally had no choice but to sin, but to live in rebellion to God. No matter how good we looked, no matter how good we tried to behave, everything we did was against God because it was. it's only by good behavior or good actions or good thoughts with a motivation to love God or doing things because of who God is, that is the only way that we ultimately please God. And so what these are getting at here is that no matter what we did before Jesus Christ, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't impress God. We couldn't do anything to mend that broken relationship with him. Instead, it was only through the work of Christ on the cross that when he died, our bondage to sin died as well. And now we can choose, will I live for myself or will I live for God? Will I be an enemy to the world or will I be an enemy to God? Am I going to do things because I love sin or because I love God? That is where we are now because of Jesus Christ, because he has brought us to life in a way that we can choose the God of life and not keep choosing those things that condemned us to death and that Jesus Christ had to die for. But that's all I'll say, because like I said, I'm not going to dig deeply into the verses. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, another thing I want to look at, though, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so here, this is uh, giving us a clear picture that goes really well with those Romans verses. And that is just this reality that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and our faith that we place in him, and in placing our faith in him and asking him to save us, he gives us the Holy Spirit. That all has a massive impact on our spiritual health because we are now a new creation. We can now love God like we loved sin. We can now hate and reject sin like we used to hate and reject God. We are able to do things that before we couldn't because we were this dead corpse and now we have been made alive so that we can choose God. And so when, when we take all of this and we talk about, you know, what it means for our spirits to be revived, for our spirits to be brought back to life, it doesn't have to be this literal thing. And in fact, as we see, God's word talks about this revival, this renewal in, in a metaphorical terms, in poetic language, in ways that speaks to what has really happened in our hearts and, and those chains of sin being removed from us. It speaks to how you know, by being spiritually dead, we were in an extreme circumstance. We weren't just struggling. Sin wasn't just this thing where we messed up, we went a bad way. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. 
But it also speaks to, because of our extreme circumstances, the extreme work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He didn't just come to teach us to be better people. He didn't come so that we could do better, but instead he had to come and do all the work on our behalf, living that perfect life and dying as a sacrifice for our sin, taking our one-to-one punishment for every lie we've told, every angry thing we've said, every lustful thought we've had. Christ was punished for every single one of those. So in, and in exchanging the extremeness of our sin and putting it on himself, he can then take his extreme perfection, his perfect obedience in life, and apply it to us so that God can, can treat us in a way that is extreme. And that is that he treats us as though we have never sinned. And all of that wraps up into why we place our faith in Jesus Christ. For salvation, yes, but also every day of our lives, because the more we understand what he did on the cross and what he has done in our hearts, in our lives, how could we not trust him in everything else? Because he did the thing that we could never do. Why would we not keep trusting him to do the things that we cannot do on our own as well? But again, I don't want to dig super deep into those verses, but the the big point I want to make with, with discussing that is overall... We, we don't need to look at spiritual death and spiritual life as these literal things like we might think of Lazarus being dead until Christ literally revived him. Instead, we can understand them in the bigger context of just being a poetic statement to get home a much bigger point of what we were and, and who we were and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, we'll end it with... Um, an answer to the the bonus proof, and that is the idea that, you know, with a trichotomy view of the human soul and the human spirit and the human body, that that means that all dogs can go to heaven. Now, you might be thinking, hey, hey, you didn't say dogs before, you said animals. Well, I've owned cats before, so I know that if an animal's going to go to heaven, it's going to be the dogs. But, no, but, but being serious here, you know, I know that this point is very important to people. I know that there are people who they look at their dogs and they say, you know, I look at him or I look at her and I just know that there is an intelligence there, that there is a soul there, that it's not just like a tree or a rock, but this thing is, it has its, its own soul, its own being or essence. And so it's hard for people to accept that, you know, when, when a pet's life dies or when a pet's life ends, that's it. And, you know, I say this not as someone who, you know, I joke about hating cats, but honestly, I've had a dog in my life almost every day of my life since I was born. I, I don't know what life could be like just not having a dog. I mean, I love dogs. You know, I've got my two dogs out there right now somehow being quiet and not interrupting my, my podcast recording. So I'm saying this not as someone who doesn't get it but as someone who understands that just because we want something, that doesn't make it true. And so, you know, with a trichotomy view, with the, the idea that we could make an argument that dogs have souls, we like that because it gives honor to our pets. You know, these creatures who we, you know, love on us when we're sick, who we take care of, who we train, who we invest our lives and our money in, we want to grant them the honor of being more than just a thing that's here and then gone. But ultimately, the biblical support just isn't there. And so we want to be careful as we are kind of looking at this evidence of, 
you know, the pros for a trichotomy view and the cons. And we want to make sure that the deciding thing isn't a belief that comforts us or gives us what we want, but instead that we are believing a thing because it's clearly true, even if we don't like the the ramifications or the conclusions that we also have to make regarding something as wonderful as the pets in our lives. All that being said, just to recap what we've talked about, we looked at how possibly being made in God's image means that just as God is Trinity, we are Trinity. And then from there, we also looked at why that leads us to some very dangerous conclusions that can diminish the majesty of God. We looked at the seeming three-part division that the Bible gives us in breaking us into three components, but how by trying to be consistent with that reading leads to people made out of a bunch of different parts, much more than just three. We looked at what Hebrews uh, 4.12 says about dividing soul and spirit and why just because it says those things, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's teaching that the soul and the spirit are two separate aspects of the human being. We talked about Paul's division, how he seems to divide them up in 1 Corinthians 14, and how, once again, looking at the bigger context of what's being said, that doesn't necessarily mean he was teaching that mind and spirit are two separate entities in a human being. We talked about the spirit being dead and why we don't need to look at that literally like we would look at a body being dead and brought to life, but instead the kind of bigger picture or the idea that it's conveying that teaches a deeper truth about who we are in Jesus Christ. Having looked at all those, like I said, the biggest issues that this interpretation or this understanding of human beings runs into is when we try to be consistent with its interpretation methods and the problem of eisegesis, of looking at a verse and ignoring what it's actually saying and instead just looking very narrowly at something that we think is being said because it supports what we're talking about. I say that in terms of uh, the Hebrews passage about dividing soul and spirit. I look at that about, I mean, really anything where we're talking about verses, you know, because because ultimately, you know, what, we, what we've discussed so far is that these verses seem to support a three-part view of human beings, but when we dig deeper, we see that they don't really seem to be saying that at all. And so a lot of what we talked about, it sounds good in isolation, but it breaks down when we try to apply consistency or uh, deeper Bible reading into that or into how we look at other verses using that same consistent method. So concluding this then, does that mean that human beings aren't made of three parts? No, it doesn't. I know that there are uh, you know, good, solid Christians out there who would very much argue for a three-part, you know, human being. It's not just this thing where people who don't know any better accidentally come up with this belief system. There are people who very strongly believe that this is is what God's Word is teaching and, and displaying to us, and that's fine. The goal of this episode was really just to show that if you are going to believe that human beings are made of three parts, there are some very, very serious issues that simply have to be addressed. You can't just ignore them and say, well, it makes sense, and I just don't want to think deeply about it. 
Instead, we need to say, is God's word truly supporting this? Is this good evidence for what God's word is teaching? Because this is something that there are whole churches full of, of godly Christians, people who love Jesus Christ, who believe that human beings are three parts. People I know believe that human beings are three parts. It's not something where we look down on someone, but it is something where we want to make sure that if we are saying this is truth, this is what God's word is teaching, that we have at the very least wrestled with the problems presented by that belief and that we have at least tried to answer and dig deeper and understand why those things don't stop us from holding our belief on human beings being a trichotomy, a three-part person. Now, like I said at the uh, intro, uh, you know, I might have stepped on some toes with this episode. I've tried to discuss this uh, with fairness towards the belief. I've tried to critique it with humility um, because I know, I know that, you know, on one hand, it doesn't matter, right? Like me thinking, you know, human beings might be one, two or three parts doesn't necessarily impact my belief in who Jesus Christ is or what he did on the cross. It's a, it's a, it's a smaller issue. I fully understand that. But I also know that beliefs can be very comfortable things because we have things that we struggle with in the Bible. And when we have an answer for it, we don't need to struggle with it anymore. We feel like we've got a handle on things, like we've got it all figured out and sorted and we're good to go. And I don't want any of my listeners, and I don't want that for myself, to be a thing where we just go through life just you know, finding an answer that suits us and never thinking about it again. There are areas where we're going to struggle with beliefs and not have an answer. There's going to be areas where we don't have the brain capacity to deal with every single theological issue out there. And there are some things where we just accept an answer and move past it. But if you stuck with this episode this long, I assume that you have questions that you want to better understand the human soul. And so I hope that ultimately all I've done is equip you to, to see the biblical support for this belief, see why that may not be as strong as we think, and just encourage people to really get out of their comfort zone and struggle through a belief they have and be willing, if God's word is clear, to let go of that belief in favor of something that maybe they've never believed before, maybe it's something that they've fought against, but to be willing to the glory of God to embrace truth whatever that means. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, like I said, this is a four-part series. We've done two up till now, and next week we'll talk about human beings being a dichotomy, being made of body and soul, and then we'll conclude with the mystery episode of another way of thinking about human beings that, in a way, actually incorporates a lot of what we'll be talking about over the first three episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.